Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning, and I'm glad that those of you at home are joining us. Um, we're here this morning to worship and sing praises to our God. Stand with me if you would.
Shepherd Baptist Church. So wonderful to have you all here see some new faces, some folks I haven't seen uh, in a, quite a while, but we're, we're, it's, it's a delight to have you here this morning. I want to uh, read uh, from God's Word here in Psalm 99. It says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Let's pray together. Our Father, indeed, we come this morning to humble ourselves at your footstool and to acknowledge your greatness and your majesty and your worthiness of all worship. We give you our thanksgiving and our acknowledge our gratitude. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you have chosen to allow us to become your people, to be able to know you and to have the joy of thinking about who you are and your nature, your attributes, of allowing us to to join in together as one heart in praising you. We thank you today for this opportunity, for this beautiful day that you've given us, for this time to gather together and with one heart express our praise to you. We pray that you will receive all that is done here today and it will be pleasing to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. And you continue worshiping with us.
today we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. It's uh, really strange that uh, our second service now is our much smaller service. Our first service has been the large service and kind of a reverse of what it used to be. So it seems a little strange, and uh, we welcome our viewers uh, from home, those who are watching. Glad to have you here with us. Now, as you look at the, the title for today's message, you may seem to I think that it reflects the mood of our nation right now. There seems to be a a, a cry for vengeance. But uh, let me remind you that that's not uh, planned on my part. That's just in the providence of God. We began the book of Revelation before we had uh, COVID-19 and before we had all the uh, events transpiring in our world. But it seems very appropriate to me. So there is a cry in the world today, for vengeance. But as we look at our text today, we see that there is a far greater cry for vengeance in heaven. So I want you to look with me what the Word of God says. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed. Also, this is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we call upon you to give us understanding, encouragement, faithfulness, obedience, And for those who have never believed in you, faith and salvation. I pray, God, that you would give grace that I might speak in a way that would be helpful to your people and that your people might be able to hear your word and the things that you wish to say, that it might be for your glory and for your honor through Christ. Amen. Vengeance. Isn't that an interesting word? What is vengeance? Webster says vengeance is punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or an offense, often with violence. Other words that we use are payback, terms like get even, settle the score, vengeance. We know that word. Vengeance is a a part of a family of closely associated words. There's words like avenge. When you avenge, you inflict punishment in retaliation for a hurt on behalf of someone else. 
There's revenge. When you revenge, you inflict punishment in retaliation for a hurt on behalf of yourself. The, the desire for revenge or for vengeance is, is natural to us. It, it's a part of our beings as, as moral beings. It's a part of our understanding of justice. You know, when someone hurts us or another person, we feel like that that person ought to get paid back for what they have done, that they ought to be hurt in kind. We feel that's just. Vengeance is a, is a natural part of our lives. And as a result, you see, we are often tempted to personally impose on other people what we believe that they should receive. That's, that's a temptation for revenge or to avenge someone else. But what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19? He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now understand, vengeance is the work of God. He will repay. And he says that until then, our attitude has to be one of forgiveness and grace. You see, God's first concern is redemption, not revenge. God will bring vengeance, but God's first concern is for redemption. And, and one of the things we've been saying as we study through the book of Revelation, that these are not just judgments, but God is in the process of also bringing redemption through the things that he is doing. So God's first concern is redemption, not vengeance. And I'm glad because if his first concern were revenge, then I would have been done away with a long time ago. You know, when Jesus was crucified, he didn't seek revenge. He prayed that God would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. When Stephen was uh, martyred, he didn't seek revenge. He prayed that God wouldn't lay what had happened to their account. God's heart is that none would perish, but that all should come to repentance. But make no mistake about it. Do not error in this regard. God is also a God of vengeance. God will bring about vengeance when people who have rejected redemption, there will come that time. And vengeance belongs to God and Him alone because all sin is ultimately against God. So there comes a time you see, when the opportunity for grace ceases and judgment begins. And that's where we are when we come to Revelation chapter 6. We are come to a time when it's time for vengeance. It's time for judgment. Now, I'll put up before you the uh, chart that we saw last week and just remind you here that the last, the four seals that we looked at, 
uh, which are a false peace, and war and famine and death, all transpire during the first part of the seven-year tribulation, the first three and a half years, that what, what Jesus refers to as the pain or the birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. And by the way, some of you have asked for this chart, these charts. They are on our website. You can download those. You can print them out if you would like. So, and Jesus tells us that just as... Um, a woman's labor pains increase in intensity and frequency as the time for her, the birth of her child nears. So the intensity and frequency of the judgments are going to come as it gets nearer to the time of Christ's return. So the full force of God's wrath, you see, is about to be unleashed in the second half of the seven-year tribulation. The fifth seal, like all the other seals, is a judgment from God. And the judgment that is poured out here is vengeance. What do we see? We see souls that have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they have maintained. These are, these are martyrs. And understand that in that tribulation period, that the believing as well as the unbelieving are going to be subject to all of the judgments that fall. Now, the, the church has been taken out. It's gone. But the believing that, are, that come to trust in Christ during this time, they are going to be subject to all the judgments that fall during this time. Salvation can come and will come during the tribulation, but it's going to come at great cost it's going to come at great privation, torture, and even death. This is a picture of persecution and martyrdom. Now, the fifth seal marks the midpoint of the, of the tribulation period, and, and that's why we kind of show the fifth seal kind of lapsing from the beginning to over into the second half of the tribulation period. And like the horsemen of the first seal uh, and the, four se- of the first four seals, it portrays a force. And the force that is in view here are the prayers of God's people for vengeance upon those who have been martyred. There are three reasons why God is going to bring vengeance. And the first is this. God is going to bring vengeance because of the perseverance of the martyrs. Look at verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, when the Lamb broke the seal, there's, as we have seen before, another in the sequence of judgments begins to unfold. This is a judgment. And John saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been, it says, slain. In other words, these are the martyrs that have been killed during the times of the the judgment. But in addition to the judgments that are happening on the world and people that are dying from that, there is an intense persecution 
that begins and takes out many more people during this time. This is a persecution that is led by Satan, by Antichrist, by all of his followers. And then something that I wanted to just bring to your attention today, because I said we'd try to do this in the future, but Jesus taught this very same sequence in his Olivet Discord in Matthew chapter 24. You remember his disciples came to him and they said to him, Show us what, tell us what's going to happen in the future. And Jesus begins to explain to them. And so what we see is that the, the parallel of what Jesus says is parallels what's happening here in the book of Revelation. And the first seven verses, as we saw last week, are correspond to the first four seals and the first half of the tribulation period. And just as the first seals show, uh, the first, uh, uh, I should say, the, the fifth seal describes martyrs, Jesus talks about that as well in verse 9. And he says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. There's tribulation. There's martyrdom. And the event that marks the midpoint of the tribulation and the setting is the setting up of the abomination of desolation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, when Jesus says this, he's saying that we ought to make the connection. There's something that we ought to understand when this occurs. And because Jesus begins to talk about the the persecution all the way back in verse 9, and he, but the abomination of desolation doesn't come till verse 15. This tells us that the tribulation actually begins in the, fir, the, uh, the persecution begins in the first part of the tribulation, and it's going to intensify greatly in that second half. So on our chart, the, the fifth seal spans from the first half of the tribulation into the second half. And the abomination of desolation is spoken of three times by the prophet Daniel in his book. And it, is, and it describes what Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a Syrian king, did in 2nd century B.C. in the temple. You say, what did he do? Well, he slaughtered countless thousands of Jewish men. He sold into slavery many of the, of the wives and children of these men. He tried to just wipe out every semblance of Judaism that he could. He went and he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and forcing all the priests to eat the meat from these pigs. And of course, the pig was the most unclean ceremonial animal that they could that he could have chosen. And then he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple, which he said was fancied as as his manifest uh, manifesting. He took the name 
Theos, Epiphanos. Now, you know what an epiphany is. It's a, it's a revelation, a, a sight or a seeing or an unveiling, uh, a, a realization. And Theos means God. So this is a God manifestation. He manifests himself to be God, to be Zeus, as it were. And this horrible defilement, see, of Antiochus was a preview of what the Antichrist will do in the end times. Because the Antichrist is going to come to the temple, he is going to desecrate it, and he is going to set himself up as God. The Apostle Paul tells us about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's another name for the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And verse 6 continues, And you know that what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he now who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. The one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. You see, this person that Paul is talking about cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes because this is written much later in history. And... The removal of what restrains him now will permit Antichrist and his evil followers to run rampant, and he will have all power. The power that keeps Antichrist from fully manifesting himself in his all of his evil is the power of God. So however you look at it in terms of the Holy Spirit, just simply the power of God, God is keeping Antichrist from manifesting himself fully at this time. And he can't do that until God allows it. But when God removes that restraining force, then it says he's going to be revealed. He's going to be unmasked, as it were. It's going to become evident that he is this Satan-possessed false Christ. And he's going to fulfill his apostasy. The persecution... Will, even in its initial phases, be worldwide in scope. Because Jesus warned in, in verse 9 of Matthew 24, he says, You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And I think that verse implies that this uh, persecution will not only be tolerated, but possibly even uh, encouraged by world governments. And, and it also is going to be religious in nature. It's led by a worldwide false religious system, which we're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 17. The world's hatred for God and for Jesus Christ is going to cause them to bring about a great persecution of believers. Now, inevitably, this persecution is going to do something else. It's going to sift those who outwardly identify with 
Jesus Christ. As has been through, through throughout the history of the church, there are, there are tares among the wheats. And the persecution, as it always does, is going to reveal who is truly redeemed and who is not. Jesus describes this sifting process in Matthew 24, verse 10. He says, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Now, you may have noticed that so far in the reading of our text, these these verses, we've seen the word lawlessness five times. Lawlessness. Does that sound familiar to you today? That's what we have in our world today. And it's the, the mystery of lawlessness, falseness, is already at work. We're just seeing the beginnings of what lawlessness will bring to our world. False believers will reveal their true identity because they're going to defect. First John 2.19 describes this. He says, they went out from us but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. Why? So that it should be shown that they are not all of us. Genuine believers, on the other hand, persevere. Genuine believers remain loyal to Christ. Jesus says in verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. See, the redeemed persevere through any trial, including persecution and martyrdom. And the world's hostility toward toward Christ and his followers are not going to be able to stop the gospel from being proclaimed in the world. Because Jesus says in verse 10 there, he says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In spite of all that persecution against believers, they're not going to be able to stop them from proclaiming the gospel. We're going to learn later that those uh, people who are proclaiming the gospel include 144,000 Jewish evangelists. There are some powerful prophets that are called the two witnesses. And then after that, there's going to be an angel that flies over the earth proclaiming the gospel in all languages. God's going to get the gospel out there. And so, so effective will be their preaching that Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says that it it was a great multitude which no one could count. Isn't that an incredible thing? So as, as we said earlier, the abomination of desolation is the event that causes this triggers this persecution to become greatly intense. And when Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands to be worshipped by the world, then everybody's going to see who he really is, that he's a false Christ. But the world is not going to acknowledge that. At that point, the the world is not going to view him merely as a religious leader or as a military leader, as a politician, because remember what it says in in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. It says, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs of false wonders. 
The world's going to be deceived into worshiping him as a deity. The world is deceived. How, how easily the world is deceived. We see it in our day, don't we? At that point, it's, 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 it's crazy because it tells us in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 that this worldwide worship of, of Antichrist is going to be motivated by Satan. And he says the whole earth that was amazed, was amazed and followed after the beast, that's Antichrist, and they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And Antichrist Boy, he just eats all that up, and it says in verse 5 that he speaks arrogant words and blasphemies, and he's going to be granted by God authority to carry out his blasphemous enterprise for 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's the second half of the tribulation. So the persecuted believers that began mildly persecuted in the first half, they're going to experience this incredibly intense persecution in the second half, as Antichrist sets himself up to be God. And it says that in chapter 13 and verse 7, that he, will, he made war with the saints and overcame them. That's scary, isn't it? With the whole world worshiping Antichrist as believers, or as, a, as, as God, then believers are going to be subject to... Uh, all kinds of persecution. They're going to be looked upon as the, as the blasphemers against God. Anybody that speaks out against this, this man, this one, this being, boy, you are going to be the subject of intense persecution. Revelation 9.21 describes a proliferation of murders that, that kind of sounds like that many of these believers are going to be the victims of mob violence. It's not going to be just the direct persecution of Antichrist or of Satan, but even the followers are just going to come and, and destroy people who would speak against Antichrist. In his Olivet Discourse, Jesus also spoke about the intensifying persecution of this time. He says in verse 16, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of and, and are out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on Sabbath. But then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. A great tribulation like the world has never seen. And he says in verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus says the only defense when, when this intense persecution comes is immediate flight. You better get out of town, and you better pray that you are not with child. You better pray that you're not nursing a child. You better pray that it's not wintertime and it's snowing. You better pray that you don't have to deal with all the regulations of, of trying to travel in, in this world. 
So severe will that persecution be that none will survive unless God shortened that time of persecution. And in Revelation, again, 7 and verse 9, it indicates that the slaughter is going to be on a massive scale and it's going to include people from all across the world. And John described the the martyrs underneath the altar as souls. He describes them as souls because they do not have their resurrected bodies yet. Now remember, when the church was raptured, they receive, the church receives their resurrected bodies. They are represented by the 24 elders that fall down and worship God. But these that are now being taken to heaven as they die, they are in heaven. They are souls. They're, they're spirits. They're the real you on the inside without your body. And they are in heaven. And they're the, they're the first fruits of those who die in the tribulation. The text tells us about this altar, but it doesn't tell us what altar. And as, remember, as we looked at heaven, the scene of heaven in chapter 4 and 5, we don't see the tabernacle of Moses, the earthly tabernacle represented. It doesn't have a throne. We don't see any of those things. But the altar here that's spoken of is, is a reference, most likely, to the altar of incense. Because the altar of incense is associated with prayers. As that incense would rise up in the air, it was a fragrant aroma and pleasing to the Lord. And the prayers of God's people as they rise up to God are a fragrant aroma to Him. They're pleasing to Him. And the prayers of, uh, are pictured this way. These are the saints uh, without resurrected bodies lifting up their prayers to God. And John gives two reasons why these martyrs will be slain. He says, for the, because of the, their holding on to the word of God and because of their testimony, which they maintained. You see, what's going to happen is that when the church is gone, the church is not here, right? So where do the believers come from that are in the tribulation? Well, there are going to be a lot of people who, who heard the gospel. Well, there are going to be a lot of people that sat in a service like this who heard the gospel They never believed it. They never committed their life to Christ. There are going to be a lot of people who sat through a Revelation series because they thought it was interesting, because they thought it was a little entertaining, but they never embraced it in their personal lives. And when all these things begin to happen, somebody's going to get out there and say, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. And they're going to start reading their Bibles. And they're going to recognize, wait a minute, this is what's happening. And there are going to be people that are going to come to faith in Christ and they're going to begin to tell other people about it. And they're going, what? This is, this is obviously happening. And people are going to be saved all over the place. But all those people who are saved, they are going to be subject now to persecution because Antichrist and his crowd are not going to tolerate this bold proclaiming of the gospel. They won't allow the truth to be made known. It's going to be censored in our world. And he talks about because of the the Word of God, you see, they're holding on to the Word of God. It's the Word of God. This is truth. It makes a difference in their lives. And then he talks about because of the testimony which they maintained. That pictures their perseverance. You see, they are living out their faith in spite of the persecution and the possibility of martyrdom. 
Though their lives are being threatened, they are still being faithful to Christ, knowing what they're going to get. And and a world deprived of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, merciless people are going to come along and they are going to torture and kill these people who are believers in Christ. They don't want them to proclaim this message of truth. And, And can I tell you, friends, that God calls us to persevere. What persevere means, it means you keep on being faithful. In spite of whatever comes, whatever opposition you face, you continue to be faithful to Jesus Christ. God calls us to to trust and hang on to the Word of God. This is our truth. We must read it. We must know it. We must understand it. We must trust in it. It's the Word of God. And we must live it, really live it, in the world in which we live. We need a testimony. People need to know where we stand, where we are. God's going to bring vengeance because of the perseverance of the martyrs. And God's going to bring vengeance because of the prayers of the martyrs. In verse 10, we read, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the fifth seal here is not martyrdom. Some have suggested. Sometimes you see that in even uh, a heading in your Bible. But it's, it's not martyrdom because martyrdom is not a judgment from God. God doesn't pour out judgment on his people, God's pouring out his judgment on the unbelieving world. And the seal depicts God's wrath and judgment on the ungodly, not on his children. You see, the force that is involved here in this fifth seal is the pr- are the prayers of God's people crying out for God to make things right. It's vengeance on their Christ-rejecting murderers. Friends, prayer will play a vital role in the outpouring of the judgments of God. Most people don't even know that. Let me say that again. Prayer will play, play, play a vital role in the outpouring of God's judgments. See, but this prayer is very different from the one that the martyr Stephen prayed. He said, don't lay this to their account. This prayer of the martyrs is more like the imprecatory psalms. This is a prayer that says the time of grace has passed, and now it's time for judgment to begin. It's time for God to make things right. It's time for God to officially take back all that we have forfeited in this world. And many, many Christians act as if prayer is a, is a mere formality that has little effect. Yet amazingly, the prayers of the tribulation saints move the hand of God in judgment. It's the prayers of God's people that initiate what happens in the second half of the tribulation period. The martyrs 
crying out to God. Such prayers are not desire for personal revenge. This is a prayer that, that God would be honored, that God would make all things right. This is a prayer that, that God would be exalted to his rightful place rather than the Antichrist who's claiming to be God. You know, this is, this is illustrated for us in Jesus' parable of the persistent woman and the unrighteous judge. You remember that in Luke chapter 18? And she just keeps going to him again and again persistently. And finally, this unrighteous judge says, okay, I'm going to give you what you were requesting. And Jesus says in, in Luke 18, verse 7, he says, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. The prayers of the tribulation saints will move the hand of God, and God will bring justice into the world. It will... It will move God to justice because their prayers are urgent and fervent, impassioned, and they are consistent with God's purpose and will. This is what God wants them to pray, and God is responding to what they are praying. And they cry out. And I want you to notice, they cry out with a loud voice. They do not cry out with loud voices. They cry out with one voice, with, with a voice in unity, a voice of solidarity. They they cry out the heart of God. God, bring vengeance. Bring justice into the world. And in keeping with their cry for vengeance, they address him as holy and true. You know, there are two, two reasons, two attributes of God that they appeal to. You're holy and you're true. And he says, Lord, uh, uh, we call upon you. Lord does not translate the regular uh, kurios, New Testament kurios, but this is a, a word that's called despotes. You can hear the word despot. It's, it's an absolute ruler. It's an absolute master. And it, it speaks of God's might and power and absolute authority over all things. And these martyrs base their appeal for vengeance on two attributes of God. First, they say, because you are holy, you must judge sin. And because you are true, you must keep your promises. And so, God, we call upon you because you are holy and true. And then they ask him, they said, how long? How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. See, they're asking the question, how long? They're not asking the question, will you? This is a question of faith, not a question of doubt. How long is it going to be, Lord, before this happens? How long? Let me ask you, have you ever asked that question? How long? When you're hurting and you're in need, you're in pain, and you're struggling. Have you ever asked, how long? How long am I going to deal with this? I don't know. I really I don't even know a Christian who hasn't asked that question. But they ask this question. 
They're not trying to tell God what to do. They're saying, Lord, we just want to see Antichrist deposed. We want to see Satan put in his place. We want to see Christ exalted. We want to see righteousness reign. And then they they talk about those who dwell on the earth. As you look at the book of Revelation, it's more of a technical term that describes the unbelievers. You see this used throughout the book of Revelation for the ungodly. And their blood cries out for vengeance. Remember when Cain killed Abel and his blood cried out? Why? Because something wasn't right. It wasn't, there was, was no justice. And the blood of these martyrs cries out to God to make things right, to bring justice in the world. I'll tell you, friends, that time is fast approaching. And God will judge his enemies, and he will bring vengeance upon this world. But, he says, not right now, in a little while. You see, God calls us to persevere in the meantime in prayer, trusting God that he is going to do what he has said he will do. And that brings us to our our third reason why God is going to bring justice. God will bring vengeance because of his promise to the martyrs. It says in verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and the brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Two elements make up their, the response to these martyred saints, a symbolic gift and a spoken word. First, there is a symbolic gift. God gives to each one of them a white robe. Now, as we've seen before, white robes typically are a picture of righteousness, of, of holiness, right? And it's also a, a picture of, of, God's, of God's grace that he has given to these people in, in, this, in this hour, uh, of their blessedness, their dignity, their honor. Uh, they symbolize all the glory that these redeemed saints will enjoy in heaven forever. It's a reminder of where they are and what God has for them. Now, these are not actual robes, because remember, these are saints without bodies at this point. This is a symbol. This is a, a picture of God's righteousness and God's blessedness that he has given to them. The, the tribulation saints aren't going to get their bodies till we get to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. But along with this gift came God's spoken word, namely that they should rest for a little while longer. In other words, God is, is, is preparing them that I have some more things to do. And in the time, in the in the in-between time, there are going to be a lot more martyrs. There are going to be people that are going to be killed in the persecution just like you were. Now that's a little hard to hear, isn't it? Because we'd like to have our prayer say, man, it's gonna it's it's just gonna be taken care of. It's all gonna be done. But no, in reality, you see, what's going to happen 
is that God is going to, for the rest of the tribulation, the great tribulation, God is going to pour out his judgment. And in that time of that judgment, there are going to be many more martyrs. That's what he means when he says you're, 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 you're fe- the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. God sovereignly determines every person that will die and how they will die. We're, we're all in God's hands when it comes to that. But the word of these souls under the altar, under the altar gives a reassurance that God will ultimately bring about the vengeance. God will fulfill his promise to do that. Vengeance. That word, doesn't it just kind of do something to you? Vengeance. The good news is we don't have to experience God's vengeance. The good news is, is that God has poured out all of his vengeance on his son, Jesus Christ, already on the cross. That's what the cross was about. God poured out his fury. God poured out his wrath on his own son. All that we were to experience, he experienced in our place. And he overcame all that was put upon him. He was an overcomer, a a martyr that endured, a a martyr that prayed, a martyr that claimed the promises of God. And he rose from the dead, and he is alive, and he is our hope. We do not have to experience the vengeance of God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my question to you is this. Have you put your faith in Christ? Do you know for sure that you will not have to experience the vengeance that is coming upon this world, upon the unbelieving? I want to ask you, if you would, just to close your eyes, bow your heads just for a few moments, and I want you to think with me. I want you to evaluate your own life, your own soul. If today were the last day of your life, where would your soul be? Where would your soul be? Would your soul be in heaven awaiting the resurrection of your body? Or would your soul already be in torment, separated from God? The difference is, what have you done with Jesus? Have you put your trust in the one who's already taken your vengeance on himself? Are you one that really clings to the word of God, to its truth? Are you the one that's really living out that testimony day by day? Are you one who seeks God in prayer? Just 
praying his will, his heart over this world. Do you know for sure that you have eternal life, that you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If you don't know that for sure, you can do that today. You can call upon him. You can say, God, I know that that I have sinned. I I know that I have broken your law. I, I know that I am due your vengeance, your wrath. But I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place. And I believe that he overcame death and he's alive. And Lord, best I know how, I I give my life to your control. I want you to be the Lord. I don't want to be on the throne. I want you to be on the throne. And if you'll call out to him in faith, he'll give you his eternal life. You'll be a soul. Be in heaven when you die. If you're a believer, you know, today it's hard to hear some of these things that are going to happen in the future. It's bittersweet. There's, there's something wonderful about thinking that God is going to be in control and, and that sin is going to be done, vanquished, and we're going to live in a place of beauty and harmony. But it's also so difficult, so bitter to think about all those who reject Christ. God has left us here in this time for a little while longer. And we need to cling to the Word of God and live our testimony before the world and pray, believe God's promises, and then we'll receive that reward. And we can find encouragement in that, hope in that. And I pray that you will be encouraged and motivated the days ahead. No one's looking around right now. You can't be seen on camera today. And I'd just like to ask you today, if you say, you know, I, I prayed that prayer. I, I want Jesus Christ to be the Savior of my life. I, I trusted him. I, I prayed that prayer with you today. Would you just lift your hands, put it, put it up in the air, and just put it back down? haven't done that, let me encourage you please to do that. Our Father, we want to come to you today in behalf of our nation. Lord, we look at our world and we see incredible chaos, darkness, hurt, pain. Lord, in many ways we feel so powerless. For God, we We as your people, we look to you as our hope. We ask you, God, because we know you are a God of mercy, to have mercy upon our our nation. We pray that many might 
open their eyes in the light of the difficulties of our day and, and look to you as a hope and to see that you are the Savior, the Redeemer. Lord, we, we pray for our leaders that have difficult decisions. We pray for them to make righteous decisions, even in spite of all the negative and false counsel that they receive. We pray you give them the grace to make right decisions and to honor you. We pray for our people, Lord, that you would help us to be encouragers, to be ones who love and speak truth. And we pray, God, that you'd give us grace to trust you a little while longer on this earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. And I will remind you that we are going to dismiss as we have been. Uh, We'll dismiss from the back row. And then as you go out, if you wouldn't mind, just go outside. It's a beautiful day. There you can uh, socialize, fellowship, and uh, talk with uh, friends. Hope that you will enjoy that beautiful day. So, And one other reminder that if you'd like to pick up Bible Fellowship materials, you can take a left when you go out the door, go into the children's church area, and you can find the materials laid out by class available there, and you can pick that up. With that, you are dismissed.